We'll just wait as there's the last sprinkling of powdered cream. We're in the book of Amos. We're going to try to cover uh, and covers. I was under the covers last night. Now now we're here. We're going to try to cover uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 here today. We've been talking about uh, how, how turning uh, to the Lord changes our, our hearts toward, toward people. We've been saying that God has been telling the Israelites through Amos to hear, and they're not hearing. They're not, they're not listening. They don't know how to do what's right. And as we go through this text, it's interesting how the Lord has different levels of warning, different levels of speaking here starts at one level and then it intensifies more. And even though they're not listening, they're not listening on level one or level two or level three. It doesn't matter. And sometimes even with small children, we begin with a whisper. And then we get a little bit more serious and a little bit more serious. And finally we get stern. And the question is, are they going to listen? And that is what is going on here is God is speaking and he's going through different levels of warning and he's calling the people here to turn. But chapter 5 begins with a very sorrowful note. In fact, this is a dirge. Verses 1 and 2 are a dirge. They are a song that could be sung at a funeral. And it's as if God were saying, Israel is dead. And Israel is laid out and the the casket is laid out before God. And God is weeping and he is talking about this one that would not listen and as a result of not listening, plunged into great tragedy, great sorrow, great sin, and eventually died. And Amos says here, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, this word of sorrow, fallen, no more to rise. Is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up? She's not dead at this point, but God is speaking as though she were dead because he knows, God knows all things. He knows what's going to happen in the future, and he knows exactly the decisions that she is going to make. He has been pleading with her to turn. Seek the Lord and live. That's that's the theme here in this chapter. If you'd only seek the Lord, if you'd only turn from your wicked way and rend your hearts and change the way that you're thinking and begin to get your mind back on God, it's really a message of repentance. We don't hear a lot about repentance anymore. But there is no salvation without repentance. And salvation doesn't just come when we just say, well, I'm sorry, Lord. And we go through the the rote prayer that we have been given. I know I've been told I need to say I'm sorry. And I so I say I'm sorry. I, I don't know what this really means. And. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for the things in the past that I've done. 
That's not true repentance. For somebody to be genuinely turning back to God, their heart needs to be changed in such a way where they automatically say to God, God, I'm turning back toward you. Lord, I'm turning from my sin, whatever that sin is. Listen, there is no, there is no salvation without repentance. It's not just we come and we say, yes, I believe Jesus is the Christ. It's much more than that. We come to the place in our life where there is genuine sorrow over our sin, and nobody can give that to us. Listen, nobody can give that to us, and nobody can take that away. There must come a point in our life where we hear the word of the Lord saying to us, seek the Lord and live. Why will you die? Now listen, the hardened heart says, I don't care. I don't care. I am, I'm hearing God what you're saying. I'm listening to the things that you're saying, but I'm, I, I'm not really that bothered by it. I understand the verbiage that you're using here. In the Hebrew or in the English, God, I, I get kind of what you're saying here, but, I, but I'm really not going to listen. I don't even really truly understand at a heart level what you're talking about. But the person who is genuinely running after the Lord says, Lord, I repent of my sin. Lord, I will seek you. I will, I will turn to you. I will go from this direction of heading in this direction in life, and now my heart has been changed, and I'm now turning in this direction so that the manifestation of true repentance, the manifestation of a God-worked supernatural repentance is a changed life. It's a changed life. A person was living this way and all of a sudden because their heart has changed and they have turned to God, they have sought God and they are now living there's a change in their life. Luke chapter 13, if you go over to Luke chapter 13, the Gospels, Luke being one of them, Luke chapter 13, verse 3, chapter 13, verse 3, and also verse 5, So Luke chapter 13, verse 3 says this. No, I tell you, Jesus talking. He says this. No, I, I tell you, but unless you repent, here it is, unless you repent, unless you, unless you turn, you will all likewise perish. Notice what he says again in verse 5. He says the same thing. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And this is what God is doing through the prophet of Hosea. He is pleading with Israel to seek him and live. You go back to Amos chapter 5. That's exactly what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Then he says this, do not seek Bethel. Bethel was where Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, had set up a calf. Earlier it was a special place in Israel because Jacob, as he was sleeping, had a dream. And during the dream he saw this, this ladder of angels ascending and descending to heaven. And so it became this shrine-like place. It became this place of false worship and 
God is saying, don't go to Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Gilgal was where Joshua had led the people after they crossed the Jordan River and they had taken 12 stones out of the river. And they set up an altar before the Lord, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. Or cross over to Beersheba, which had a rich history with the patriarchs of Israel. Each patriarch had an experience with Beersheba, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying, don't just think you can go to these places and it's the place that's going to make the big difference. Oh, what a beautiful building. We go to this wonderful church. It has such beautiful paintings and the stained glass is so wonderful. Or it's so contemporary and modern and it becomes all about the building or even all about the place of where God ministered at one time. We heard that God had touched somebody's life here. So if we, if we can only travel to this place, then perhaps God will touch us as well. I remember in my uh, senior year, my junior year rather, when I was 17 years old, I went to this winter retreat, this, this camp for kids in the denomination I was in. And the man who was, uh, who was preaching, his name, I still remember his name, his name was Rusty Nelson. And he, um, he wrote the song, A Pure Heart. A pure heart, that's what I long for. A heart that follows wholly after you. I won't try to sing it. We'll just, we'll just skip that part of the service today. And during the whole service, he was talking about what we were talking about this morning, experiencing God. And it's so interesting how the sovereign Holy Spirit can work on one individual at one time or a group of individuals and another group of individuals will be completely unmoved. But that was my moment. And I knew the Lord. It wasn't a matter of not being saved. Listen, anybody who has the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit according to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you do not have the Spirit, you do not have Christ, you are not saved. But after you get saved, God wants us to experience Him over and over again. And as I sat there listening to this sermon, God began to break me. I got it. I got what He was saying. I was hearing from the Lord. It wasn't just this man talking he was talking about how he had spent hours with other people and perhaps even a few days in preparation and prayer just for that particular service. Oh, God, get a hold of these kids. Get a hold of them. And afterwards, they set up a prayer line, one line on each side of the aisle. And they just asked if anybody wanted to be ministered to that you would start at the back of the line and you would walk through this line and you would be prayed for. One would be prayed for. And as I got to the beginning of this line, I was weeping uncontrollably. And it was no pressure. There was no manipulation. 
There was no one banging me on the head. It wasn't just a mere emotional experience. It was the presence of God. And as I began to walk through this line, youth workers and pastors were laying their hands out, not pushing anybody, laying their hands out, just praying, oh, God, touch this one, touch their life, change their life, minister to their life. And as I came toward the very end of the whole line, toward the front of the church, the Spirit of God came upon me in such a way I could no longer stand. Couldn't stand up. And I went down, wham, on the floor. And I literally remember 17 years old being carried over to a, to a side of the church altar area where I lay glued to the floor. And all I knew was that I was experiencing God. And as Glenn was praying earlier, it bore witness in my spirit, because all that I experienced was the love of God. It wasn't scary. There was no fear involved. For the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. There was nothing weird about it. There was nothing strange about it. And I remember just laying there, not speaking in tongues, just laying there before the Lord, just saying, Lord, I love you. And he was cleaning me from the inside out, worshiping the Lord. And I could hear in the background, I could hear what was going on, but it was like liquid love. It was the very power and the presence of God. And finally, I got up from that experience and I went and found my youth pastor. His name was Harry. And I, the first thing I said to him, I said, Harry, I know what heaven's like. And I can't wait to get there. I knew. It was an encounter with God. It wasn't just hearing about God. It wasn't just thinking about God. It was genuinely encountering him. Now, fast forward to about maybe five or six years ago. I was at a conference at that exact place. And as I sat in this conference as a pastor, thinking about all that the Lord had done in my life, I was walking in the very same gym area that this had been in, the same retreat center, the same floor, the same everything. And there was no experience like that. In fact, there has never been with all the different wonderful spirit-filled services that I've been in. I've never encountered anything like that for the rest of my life. It was a one-time deal. But I remember going back and thinking, well, this place is neat, it's special, but really there's nothing special about the place itself. It's a good memory. It's a neat place. But to come back here to set up a little shrine before the Lord, to build a little altar, wouldn't really work. It really wouldn't matter and this is what God is saying he's saying don't go to Bethel you got the you got the golden calf there and you've got everything set up you got the shrine set up but there's no experience of God there that's not what it's about don't don't run to this place and don't run to that place and you think well if I get to this place then perhaps I heard I heard that Mary actually in this painting she actually cried. And if I could just get to the place where Mary was crying, 
then perhaps God would speak to me as well. And God is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit, stop thinking about the place. You keep thinking about religion is about this place. And it's not. Look with me at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 20, Jesus is talking with this Samaritan woman. And she's busy. We won't go through the whole thing, but she's busy about talking about the place. And she said in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Then she gets into this whole place argument. She says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. She's saying, Our Samaritan heritage says this is where we're supposed to be worshiping. It's on this particular mountain. We have Jewish roots here as well. She's saying you Jews are saying that you need to go to Jerusalem to worship properly. And Jesus gets her eyes off the place because the whole temple edifice was pointing to the true temple. And that is the temple of the Lord's body, the true temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's Jesus Christ. And of course, by extension, we are his body. But it's not about a place. He says, you worship in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, this is how I want you to worship. I want you to worship in truth. I want you to know the God of Israel, and I want you to know his son, Jesus Christ himself, as he's talking to her, the one that the Father has sent. And I want you to worship with your spirit. Not just looking at the place, but I want your spirit to be lifted up. So he says, Amos says again in verse 6 of Amos chapter 5, he says, seek the Lord and live. It's this total message of repentance. And then Amos begins to worship in the middle of this, reminding us of Paul when Paul would be teaching deep theology and all of a sudden he would just break out in worship because any good theologian loves to worship. Verse 8, he says, he who made Pleiades... This is um, a group of stars known as the Seven Sisters. It's part of the constellation of Taurus. You think God is the one who made this. Amos is beginning to worship. And Orion, another constellation in the skies, the great hunter. He says, this is the great God, but you, Israel, you have been sinning. It's your sin that's the issue. It's the sin that is the problem here. You love your sin. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. The gate was the place where there was justice, where there was wisdom. Legal transactions took place in the gate. It's where the wise men and the judges would sit. And instead of getting justice and instead of getting truth people were getting manipulated and the poor were being defrauded and instead of loving the truth they hated the truth they despised the truth verse 10 and they abhor him who speaks the truth 
What is the great indicator of a Christian? It's one who loves the truth. The truth, they love the truth. They speak the truth. God changes us from abhorring the truth and detesting the truth and not liking the truth to being people of the truth. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 21 says this. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Notice what it says, as the truth is in Jesus. Then it talks about all the different sins that we need to put away, corrupt and deceitful desires. Notice verse 25, what it says. Therefore, having put away falsehood. What's the mark of a Christian? Somebody who loves the truth, who puts away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So God says, you don't love the truth. You're trampling the poor. You're taking advantage of the weak. The government, the judges at the gate, the wise men at the gate, instead of meeting out justice or being unfair. We live in a, in a country where the poor are treated very well overall. We... We think about countries that we could say, listen, doesn't mean everything is perfect here. It's not. And we don't have the greatest track record in everything, although we have a wonderful nation, wonderful roots, godly um, men, some of them, some of them not so godly, who helped found this nation. By the way, it's a myth. You hear this all the time. Oh, they were all a bunch of deists. That's just not true. Some of them were deists, some of them were not. Some of them were godly clergymen. So it depends. So you look at this history and you think, how have we defrauded the poor? And you look at one of the greatest stains in our land, of course, is the whole stain of slavery. You want to talk about defrauding the poor and manipulating the weak, taking somebody from their homeland, putting them in the bottom of a ship, treating them like an animal, bringing them over here and then treating them like a dog for their whole life, that's despising the poor. On a much lower level, we even think about our history here, and you think about all the coal miners, totally different than slavery, but nonetheless, many of them were taken advantage of. And you think about the long hours spent in the mines with extremely little pay, and many of them dying of uh, early deaths and working these long hours in these dark and damp coal mines. And we thank the Lord that they did. And we need to be doing everything, making sure, are the poor being taken care of in our society? And the answer, as we said from before, is not socialism. It isn't the government steps in and takes from the rich and gives it to the poor. The government is not Robin Hood. Nonetheless, every business needs to be asking themselves, are we doing things ethically? Are we trying to treat those who are working for us fairly and kindly? Do we care about them or do we simply care about ourselves?
One of the sad things we hear all the time in our day is people working under the table. I work under the table and then they give me cash and I don't pay taxes on it. And Listen, that's an injustice in our land. That is wrong. I've heard Christians talk proudly about being paid under the table. And so the Lord is coming against and he's saying, you've, you've got all sorts of problems, Israel. You don't care about the truth. You oppress the poor. You don't care about those who are weak. And God says, I'm going to pass through your midst. I'm coming. Look with me at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Amos chapter 5. In all the squares there, there shall be wailing. And then he says, and I, verse 17, I will pass through your, I'll pass through your midst. Well, that's a good thing. People are saying, hey, the Lord is going to come and he's going to save Israel. Isn't this going to be wonderful? Things aren't so good, but the Lord is coming. He's going to rescue us and he's going to deliver us out of this. The day of the Lord, that's what they're saying. When the day of the Lord comes, the Lord's going to come and he's going to set Israel up as the primary ruling nation. All of her enemies are going to be scattered. It's going to be this wonderful day of the Lord. That's what they were thinking in their mind. The Lord is coming, okay? He's reproving us, but better days are yet ahead. The day of the Lord. And so the neighbors were talking to each other. You know, the Lord is coming. Isn't that wonderful? And we're going to finally get what we deserve. God is going to smite all of our enemies. He's going to scatter all of our enemies. He's going to defeat them. He's going to defeat enemies on every side. It's going to be this wonderful time when the Lord comes. Oh, the Lord is coming. The wonderful day of the Lord. That's how they were talking. Notice what the Lord says. Not only speaks with a voice to call them to turn, he speaks with a voice of, of woe. Notice verse 18 of chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Woe. It's an interjection here in the Hebrew. It's like saying, oh, or say or alas. It's an interjection here of pain. It's an interjection here of denunciation. It's an interjection here of public condemnation. You think things are going well, Israel, and the Lord says... Whoa, you're looking for the day of the Lord. You think it's going to be this wonderful time when the Lord comes to deliver Israel. And he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Isn't that something? People who were looking for the Lord would be sorely disappointed. Those who had their theology thinking God is blessing us. Look at all of our money. Look at our summer houses. Look at our income. Look at all the things that we are Doing, it's wonderful. God's blessing. And God says, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. He says, when I come, Israel, the day of the Lord for you is not going to be this wonderful day of blessing. The day of the Lord is going to be an awful day of defeat, and an awful day of darkness, and an awful day of condemnation and an awful day of judgment. 
God goes further on. He says, not only do I hate your injustice at the gate, not only do I hate the untruthfulness in your speech, but he says, I despise your feasts. I hate them. That's what God is saying. You get together to party in my name, and they had all sorts of different feasts in the Old Testament. He says, I take no delight, verse 21, in your solemn assemblies. These assemblies for specific days would be called for days sometimes of feasting, but also for days of fasting and prayer. And so the people would say, oh, there's a crisis in our land. Let us gather together and let us begin to call out to the Lord. And as we begin to call out to the Lord, he will hear us and he'll begin to bless us. And God says, I, I don't want to hear you and I don't want to bless you right now because you're not coming to me from a heart that's truly changed. In fact, he says, I despise your feasts and I hate your solemn assemblies. He says, verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. Stop singing, man of sorrows. Stop singing, open the eyes of my heart. Stop singing. Stop singing, Jesus loves me. Stop singing, amazing grace. You can sing it well, and you've got all the instruments, and everybody's singing, but it's become a production. Nobody's really singing to me from a spirit of holiness. That's what he's telling. I think they had the most beautiful song. They had the Psalter. They had at least 150 songs that they were singing that were inspired. And God is saying, stop singing the songs. You keep singing the songs, and you keep singing the songs, and you keep singing and you've got beautiful voices and you've got beautiful music and it's all wonderful and it's all a production and it's all heartless and nobody cares about holiness. Nobody cares about a change of life. Nobody's caring about a change of heart here. Do you know how sad it is when we think about so many of the services in our nation today, listen, that are merely feet theatrical productions. You can sing the most beautiful songs like Amazing Grace and Man of Sorrows and go to hell. You can sing it loud. You can sing it beautifully. You can raise your hands. You can dance all over the sanctuary and dance right out the door. And as I was thinking about it, I've been watching lately some different worship teams and all the lights and all the different instruments. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? It's really grieving God's heart. It's not the lights. It's not the stage. It's not the hairdos. It's not even the skinny jeans that bothers God. It's not the mohawks and blue hair. It's the lack of power. It's the lack of anointing. 
Listen, we can have all that and that's all well and fine, but you miss the anointing, you miss power, you miss everything, and God is up in heaven saying, stop singing. Stop preaching. Stop getting people to solemn assemblies and stop celebrating the feasts because I can't stand them. Verse 25, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? They were supposed to. But over time, they began to stop. I was listening to a, a Jewish man this week, and he was saying, listen, we don't, we don't believe in Jesus. He's not the Messiah. The way that we're righteous is all we have to do is repent. That's how we're righteous. That's what the Bible says, he said, the Old Testament. You repent. And, and God forgives you. So you got two things going on. You, it's not that you live a perfect life, but when you, when you do mess up, you have repentance. And so you go to the Lord in repentance and he forgives you. And Michael Brown looked at him and said, but you're missing something. You're missing the whole sacrificial system of the law. You think that you can just come and repent to God, but you miss that blood had to be spilled, that there had to be a sacrifice, and here they are in the wilderness for 40 years. They're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're supposed to be sacrificing, and yet at a certain point they just say, you know what, we're just going to repent. All God needs to do is we just go to God and we just say, oh, God, we're so sorry, and he says, okay, I forgive you, and then that's it, and he lets everybody into heaven. How is justice met out? Who's going to pay for the sins that we have committed, the fact that there is none good. There is none righteous. No, not one. There had to be some kind of sacrifice. And so he says, stop your singing, stop your preaching, stop your solemn assemblies, stop all of this. You've forgotten the fact that there's a central aspect here of sacrifice. Then he says it again in verse 6. Woe, second time in this book. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Verse 4. Some translations here say woe again. There is no woe in the, in the Hebrew. It's only two times here in the book of Amos. Woe, but it's right in context. Woe to those who lay on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock. Now notice this, what he says next. Now he's not talking about worship songs here. He's not talking about religious songs here. He says woe to those who sing idol songs. To the sound of a harp. Now he's not necessarily talking about bad music here. There's no such thing as bad music. He's not even necessarily talking about bad lyrics. But what he's telling Israel is you're on a constant vacation. Doesn't mean you're always going to Florida, but your goal in life is the weekend. It's music. You love listening to just music and taking it easy. You love watching videos nonstop. You love watching TV nonstop. You can't stop. We always talk about watching zombies. Listen, we are becoming the zombies. So he says, you love all this stuff. You love laying around. This is what you live for. You love the idle songs. You love just sitting there listening to music. And by the way, some of the music is pretty bad. Some of the lyrics. Even with... Um, with so-called innocent um, 
innocent uh, singers today. Listen to this, sweet Taylor Swift. In her album from 2014, song called New York. She sings this, all innocent. When we first dropped our bags on the apartment floors, took our broken hearts, put them in a drawer. Everybody here was someone else before. And you can do what you want. Who do you want? Boys and boys and girls and girls. Now, this is the kind of stuff that is the innocent stuff. God is saying you're listening to this stuff. He literally says it in his word. You're wasting your time. And why is it such a waste of time? Verse 6 gives us the answer. Because you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You don't care your, your country's going to hell. You'd rather be listening to music. You'd rather be laying on your couch. You'd rather be at the football game. But no one's weeping for the souls of men. No one's crying. No one's saying, Lord, this isn't good. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. Remember how he hated the pride of Esau and Obadiah? He just as much hates the pride in any person, even if it's in his own people. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city that is in it. If you go to 7, we're going to close with this. Right before 7, 6 verse 14, God says judgment is coming. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament sometimes takes on a very distant meaning. That the day of the Lord is still the day of the Lord that we're waiting for. It's that end of days when the Lord is going to come at the end of this age. But oftentimes it has a dual meaning. It's not just the end of days when the Lord comes. And by the way, that's going to be a dark day. Listen, there are many people who are saying the same thing in our church circles who are saying, isn't it going to be wonderful when Jesus comes back for all of us? Isn't it going to be wonderful? Jesus is coming back for all of us. And listen, there are going to be some of us who are sorely disappointed and need to heed the word of Amos here who says, why do you want the day of the Lord for it's not a day of light for you, it's a day of darkness. But the day of the Lord also had a connotation for that period of time. And God says in verse 14 of chapter 6, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation. And that's exactly what he did in 722 BC. He raised up the nation of Assyria and they came in and they destroyed the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And God gives a solemn word here in chapter 7, and we close with this. 
God is saying, I'm going to destroy Israel. He first talks about locusts, and Amos prays, Lord, will you relent? And the Lord says, okay, I'll relent, verse 3 concerning this. Then God says, I'm going to send fire in verse 4. And Amos says again, would you, Lord, please don't, don't send fire on your nation. The Lord relents. And then the Lord, finally, verse 7 This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. With a plumb line in his hand. So here's what he does. He says, okay, I've heard you about the locust, Amos, and I've heard about the fire. He says, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to come alongside Israel as if Israel was a wall. And I'm going to drop a plumb line. A plumb line is this long cord, and at the end of it is this spiral metal piece, arrow-looking piece that's called a plumb bob. And contractors will drop that to see the verticality of a wall, to see how straight it is. You ever hear of the word vertical, or when we talk about in the scriptures somebody being upright? So it's upright. And so when the Lord is talking about somebody being upright, it means that they're they're straight up and down. And they're righteous, and he's talking about holiness. And so he's going to drop this plumb bob down, and he's going to look at the morality of the nation of Israel, and he's going to judge them not based upon all the other stuff. He's going to judge them based upon their heart for him. John Rittenboss says this, historians examine economics, social conditions, and military strength to determine what causes the rise or fall of nations. So historians look and go, well, their military got weak, that's why they fell. Socially, they were losing money, and so on they fell. But he says this, but God shows that his purpose and the morality of the people are the true causes. So if America ever finally falls, people will say, well, that's because, you know, they they stopped doing the the military thing as strongly as they should. And economically, they began to get weak. They voted in the wrong leaders and all this kind of stuff. That's what historians will say. And God comes along and says, that's not what I'm dropping the plumb bomb on. I'm dropping the plumb bomb to see how Upright. I'm not judging the nation based upon its moral strength. I'm judging the nation on if they have sought me and lived. If they have sought me and lived. I'm going to close there. We have a lot more to say, but we'll pick it up next week. If you'll stand with me and we'll, uh, we'll get into our text next week. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and um, we, 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 just, we just think about um, Amos here as he is telling us, Lord, that we can do everything. We can do the whole religious bit, but unless our lives have been changed and we're living 
holy lives, Lord Jesus, and we really don't have much to go on. We can't really say we've been genuinely changed. Lord, I pray that you would form our character. You would make us a holy people. Holy people. That we would hear your voice, O God. And that it would begin with your word and encounters with the Spirit that change us inwardly out. Because we know if God doesn't change us, we're going to just be really good religious fakes. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The band of company.